0: Of heights, to the depths of the
1: sea. David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, "What have I done?" You know, and it's interesting here in verse one that, um, again, you know, this is a, a place in Ramah that was established as a school of the prophets, and it's interesting that while Saul is so incapacitated by the Spirit of God, there, prophesying with the prophets and his men that he had sent to capture David. You know, ultimately David escapes Naoth and goes back down to Gabea.
0: Inescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing God. Oh powerful untameable. Welcome everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible-teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. Who told every where it in our program today, we see that the Spirit of God protected David and Naoth in a powerful way. He could have simply stayed there for however long it took Saul to give up or die. Yet David left for a good reason. He wanted to know if Saul's heart had changed and if there was still a chance to reconcile with Saul. So David met with Jonathan and he asked him, What have I done? By asking this question, David was actually checking his relationship with Jonathan. So Jonathan said, as the scripture says, by no means you shall not die. This assured David that Jonathan was still his loyal friend and that Jonathan hadn't bought into Saul's lies about David. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's lesson.
1: Uh, let's open our Bibles now to First uh, Samuel chapter 19. We're going to look at actually chapter 20 tonight, but we're just going to kind of um, revisit uh, chapter 19 quickly as we get into chapter 20. If you recall, David now is is being hunted by Saul. Saul is becoming unhinged more and more as the as the verses go by, he is becoming more and emboldened and settled in his anger and his hatred toward David, who he was insanely jealous of. Um, Remember, David was a warrior, and, and David went out to fight Goliath when Saul, who was the head and shoulders taller than anybody, the scripture tells us, than anybody else. And so he ought to have been the one to size up with Goliath. But it was this young teenage boy who was certainly not that tall, but full of zeal, full of hope, full of faith in God. He goes out with just a sling and a stone without all the armor and all the nonsense. He went out there with a sling and a stone, and he he conquered Goliath and then finished him off with Goliath's own sword. And this made Saul insanely jealous because then the women started singing songs. And if you want to make men jealous of each other, all you've got to do is get women to sing about one of the men. That's a little secret. and That's for free, by the way. You don't have to... All you got to do is get two guys together and the women all to be singing about the one guy. And then all of a sudden you've got a problem on your hands. That man is... Uh, going to be in trouble. And so that's the way it was with Saul. And in chapter 19, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, it says that uh, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But then Jonathan starts to intercede on David's behalf and saying, Dad, what has he done wrong? He's done nothing wrong. He's done all your bidding. He's done all the battles. You know, the men love him. They've rallied around him. He's our leader. What, What are you doing? You know, but but reason doesn't make a whole lot. Reason means nothing when a man is filled, or any person really, is filled with jealousy and hatred. There's no reasoning with a person like that. You can reason with them with the facts, and they're not going to get it because it's it's a heart issue. It's a it's a a mental, emotional, heart thing. So, you know, facts don't mean anything when somebody's in that state, unfortunately. It has to be the Spirit of God that gets through to them. That's the bottom line. And so David kind of goes to bat for David and says, Dad, what are you thinking? King, why are you doing this? He's done nothing wrong. And so finally, in verse 6 of chapter 19, we looked and, and finally... You know, Saul, after coming to his right mind briefly, talking to his son, he makes an oath. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And this is an oath that he makes. He swore. Okay? He swore. This is an oath. This is a vow. As the Lord lives, David shall not be killed. And then it wasn't long after that that we know that the Philistines came out again. David went out and walloped them with the the boys from Judah. They go after the Philistines. They wipe them out. And then David now is coming back to the, to the palace, and Saul is in one of his moods, and the evil spirit has come upon him, and so what does David do? Not only a gifted warrior, but a gifted musician. Very un, I, I just find that really unusual to be a warrior and a musician. Usually musicians are worried about their hands. They don't want to even touch a sword. But here's David as one of those unique individuals. So he conquers in battle. Then he's coming back and he's conquering demons in Saul's life by playing the lyre or the harp. And it's effective. Yet, Saul is so filled with jealousy, he wants to pin him to the wall. With a, with a javelin. So David gets out of his way and he goes back to his house. Remember, now he's married to Michal, who is Saul's daughter. And they feign, uh, you know, the, Saul sends messengers to to take and kill David at this time. And remember, uh, Michal puts the, the teraphim in the bed and covers it up, makes it look like it's David in the bed and they come, and sure enough, he's not there, and she lets him outside of the wall, you know, lets him down by a rope or whatever outside the wall, and he, he, he skips away, and he goes to Naoth. So they're in Gabeah, If you were to look at a map of Israel, uh, Gabeah would be like right here, and then immediate north, right on the same road, there's a road that went up between, you know, Bethel and Gabeah and Ramah, and a very common road, and north of uh, Gabeah, which is the hometown of Saul, is the hometown of Samuel, which is Ramah, and in Ramah there was a school of prophets that Saul, or excuse me, Samuel had established in Naoth. And so David goes to Samuel, one of his few allies that David has right now. There's only two allies that he had: Samuel and Jonathan, Saul's son. Everyone else is against him and are under the influence of the king at, at least. And so David is—he's on the run. And so uh, Saul sends an embassage to capture David at Naoth. The first group of the men come expecting to carry him away. They ended up uh, under the influence of the Spirit of God, which is a, a wonderful thing, a very supernatural thing. And instead of coming to take David, they they prophesy before the Lord. And then Once Saul hears about that, he sends another group of guys to go capture David. Same thing happens. They get there at Naoth, and they, along with Samuel and everyone else, they begin to prophesy, and and, and they're just incapacitated. A third group comes, does the same thing. So finally, Saul himself comes, and he finds himself in the same position, the Spirit of God coming upon him as he did at the first, in the beginning of his reign, if you remember, in chapter 10. God sweetly comes upon him, even though he doesn't deserve it. But guess what? None of us deserve it, do we? None of us deserve the Spirit of God doing anything in our life, much less coming upon us and empowering us for anything. But God does this. And this is the last time, I believe, that God does this in Saul's life. And at this point, his life is going to go downhill, ultimately to destruction. Finally, we get to uh, chapter 31, where he's going to be killed in battle. But Saul was just... And this is kind of like the Lord's wake-up call to Saul. Say, Saul, do you remember your beginnings? Remember when I had Samuel anoint you as king? Do you remember what happened that day as you were looking for your, your dad's donkeys and you were searching for them and I told you where they were and I had you go and you were anointed by Samuel? Do you remember that, Saul? Do you remember how you prophesied? Remember how sweetly I came upon your life empowering you for, to be the king? And he does that here again in chapter 19 as Saul is just like a rabid dog searching, 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 just wanting to just chew David up if he could. And yet the Spirit of God has his way and Saul is incapacitated once again. And then while that's happening, so let's look at verse, uh, look at chapter 20 because this is where it gets interesting. So now... David is there with Samuel in Naoth, and now all these men, Saul's army, portions of his army, and then Saul himself comes. David's like, I've got to get out of here. These guys want to kill me. It's only a matter of time before the Spirit of God leaves these guys, and they're going to turn into rabid dogs again. So we pick up in chapter 20. It says, then David, and we're just going to read through the first ten verses, and then we're going to get into it because it's a lengthy chapter, but at least it will give us an idea of what we're looking at. It says, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, so he's, fl- he's fleeing from Ramah, Naoth, which is nearby Ramah. It's in the same city. He goes down now south back to Gabeah, which is the hometown of Saul and, of course, Jonathan. So he goes to Jonathan and he flees and he says, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either small or great, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, Jonathan, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And so Jonathan said to David, Whatever you desire yourself, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you nevertheless if there is iniquity in me kill me yourself jonathan for why should you bring why should you bring me to your father but jonathan said far be it from you for if i knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you then would i not tell you and then david said to jonathan who will then david said to jonathan excuse me who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And so we're going to stop right there and we're going to go back to verse 1 again. But what's ha- what happens in the rest of this chapter is David and Jonathan, they, they work out this means of Jonathan communicating to David by signal by, by a signal, by a specific thing that he would do out in the field with, with a bow and an arrow. And that would be a signal to David who would be hiding out in the field whether or not to come back, whether or not the king really plans to harm him or not. And it had to be that way because Jonathan had already put his life on the line, and we'll see tonight that um, he almost dies by the hand of his own father. And certainly David, is, is his neck is on the line too. So they had to devise a plan to communicate with each other by using a predetermined sign so that they would know so that David would know whether he was safe or not. Now, as we look into this chapter, it's going to be a pivotal one because we're going to see David and Jonathan saying goodbye to one another. They're going to say goodbye to one another after making vows with one another concerning their love, their loyalty, and also uh, loyalty and love uh, for one another and to their respective families. Remember, Jonathan is from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is the rightful king. David is the rightful king. Jonathan knew this. Jonathan knew this. And so they made a covenant with each other. And we're going to look at that tonight. But as far as David and Jonathan are concerned, this is the last time they believe they're going to see each other. Until the kingdom. In fact, I labeled I I titled this passage tonight, or this chapter, um, till we meet in the kingdom till we meet again or till we meet in the kingdom and that's exactly what will happen but we do see later on in verse or in chapter 23 Jonathan actually seeks David out one last time and he strengthens him but from their perspective at this moment that we're looking at tonight this is it this is what's going to separate them as 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 friends i mean they they really loved each other it's a very unique relationship very unique very rare, even today, to have somebody like this. Each of these men would gladly take the sword for the other. Each of these men would gladly stand up for each other. That was the kind of love that they had. And it wasn't a weird love. See, in a, in a passage like this, and we're going to look at this, you know, in such a perverse culture that we live in, you know, people would be influenced by current events in our culture and think, well, they were, you know, they were somehow inordinately affectioned one toward another. It has nothing to do with that. You and I both know that there can be a love between a, a, two women and two men that's, that's strictly a, a love out of friendship and out of brotherhood, a sisterhood, whatever that is. It has nothing to do with anything romance. It's nothing, nothing evil, nothing perverse. So David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? You know. And it's interesting here in verse 1, that, um, again, you know, this is a, a place in Ramah that was established as a school of the prophets. And it's interesting that while Saul is so incapacitated by the Spirit of God, there prophesying with the prophets and his men that he had sent to capture David. You know, ultimately David escapes Naoth and goes back down to Gebeah. But we have to remember, again, that David only had two allies. And that was Samuel, and it was Jonathan Samuel and Jonathan, because even though the men of Saul's army loved David and they respected him, who is in command still at this time? It's still Saul, isn't it? So Saul still has command over his armies to go run and chase and find David. And this must be have been a great conflict with these men because they respected, they loved David. And the Lord intervened and didn't allow him to be caught. But I find it interesting that as David begins his flight from Saul, God's going to be working it out for his good. He would be on the run for a couple of years. And God was going to work it out for the good because think of all the running that David did. Now, just think about this. You know, there's a, there's a verse that we know, Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I see this in David's life here because as he's running from, he he knows that area very well now, right? He's running, he's on the run. He knows every little nook, ravine, crevice, rock, crack in the rock. He knows everything because he's been on, on the run for years trying to evade Saul and his madness. And David, wouldn't he know, wouldn't he need to know the terrain very well as he would go into battle when he would ultimately become king? As the Philistines would come down a certain valley, David would know. I've been there. I know exactly where that place is very well. In fact, we're gonna get. We're gonna go around this way, and we're gonna go around this way. And David knew the land very well. He would need to know that as a king, and he knew it well now because he'd been on the run. Can you see how that works? That even when we're in our running, that God can turn around things that we and we, we, we when we were in distress, He can use those things and turn them around and use them again for our protection, and ultimately for his purpose and will for our lives. It's a mystery. You never want to step out and do something, or certainly we wouldn't want to place our, put ourselves in places of where we're vulnerable. But when we do, by God's design somehow, or even through our mistakes, we find ourselves in difficulties. Trust the Lord in it and continue to pray and, and, and just follow him no matter what. And then on the other side of the thing, you can look back and go, wow, Lord, I had no idea <laughs> that you were guiding and directing me all the way. I, I thought I was doing my own thing. And the Lord's going, yeah, I know you did. But I told you to go here. And I applied pressure over here to keep you from going there. And you went over there. And I had somebody there to protect you and to give you food and to give you nourishment. And that's the life of David. So Jonathan, verse 2, you know, he says, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, you know, small or great without first telling me. The thing is, is Jonathan didn't understand the depths of his father's heart. He didn't understand the bitterness and the hatred. He didn't think that his father was that far gone. Jonathan knew his father to a point, but he didn't know the depths of his father's heart. And honestly, how can we know someone else's heart when we barely know our own? Have you found that true of yourself? I know that of myself. I can talk a big game all I want, but until I'm in a circumstance, I have no idea how I'm going to respond. Have you heard somebody say, well, if that ever happened to me, I would do this. And then the Lord has a funny way of allowing that maybe to happen in the person's life, and then they didn't respond quite the way they thought. In fact, they may be surprised that they were one of the biggest cowards, or they might be surprised that they were one of the biggest heroes and they were just being led at the moment. and So we, we, can't, we don't even know these things. We can talk all we want, but until it happens, we know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. So if I can't know my own heart, how can I know someone else's heart? How can Jonathan know his dad's heart? Even though he knew him better than anybody, you don't really know somebody. And I don't want to scare you tonight, but I, I've heard of situations like this where a woman would be married to a man and didn't even know that the man was a serial killer. Or she was married to a man for 10 or 15 years and didn't know that he was a pedophile. These things happen. And so do we trust in man or do we trust in God? Always trust in God. Always. You can love people. Trust is earned. I remember somebody telling me, well, you've got to trust me. I, you're a Christian. And I said, yeah, I am a Christian, and I don't trust you. I don't even know who you are. And I'm supposed to just, as a default, trust you? No. Trust comes with time. Trust is earned. No matter what, trust is earned. It doesn't mean I can't help somebody out when I don't know them. That's not what I'm talking about. When somebody says, well, you have to trust me, I know I don't have to trust you. I don't. I trust God. (laughs) Make that your thing, too. I don't mean to be cold or indifferent, but it's the truth. There's a, a verse in Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. We don't know what's in another man or a woman's heart. We're not capable of knowing. That's why we've got to be careful not to judge. And assume that we know something about somebody else, no matter how much information we got, because a lot of times we make judgments upon very little information, and one little piece of information can change everything. So how careful do we need to be in the church with each other? Do you realize how many churches have fallen apart and have been separated? You know, huge chunks of people you know, being removed from a church because they got angry because somebody judged them or said something harsh about them, and they came to a different judgment, and, they, and, they, and it happens all the time. It happens in every church, by the way, because we're human. And unfortunately, sometimes we're not very spiritual. (laughs) We're not really in tune with the Lord. But the more in tune we are with him, the less that stuff will happen. So let's all learn something by that. And there's also something in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord answers the question. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I'm the one who tests the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. How could Jonathan know his father? Like God knows him. He was still perplexed that he was coming after David. He couldn't understand it. No, that can't be true. Dad, really? King? Jonathan was a good man, he was naive. He was much older than David, too, but he was a naive man, but he was a good man. He was a very good man. He wasn't the kind of guy who plumbed the depths of wickedness like his father. I love what it says in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. I like that. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. You know, it's a, have you been around somebody where every little thing that, um, you know, you could be looking at a piece of fruit and they would automatically be thinking something filthy. Or you, you could do, be out anywhere and all, their mind is always in the gutter. And so they interpret everything from the gutter. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've been around people like, I've been one of those
0: people. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., Monday through Friday at area code 585